0: Hello and welcome to High T Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our journey, no, 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 today we continue our adventure through the life of Alexander the Great with our coverage of The Siege of Tyre in 332 BCE. Real quick, I, always in my head, I read this as Tyr, it's T-Y-R-E, I hear Tyr, I listen to several audiobooks, a lecture from a Great Courses series, appears to be Tyre, if that is incorrect and I am correct, then I'm sorry. But anyway, we're going to be talking about the Siege of Tyre, see, Siege of Tyre, in 332 BCE. This engagement was far from the largest and also far from the most important engagement of Alexander's campaigns, but it represents one of, if not the most impressive of his military achievements to me. And I can't wait to get into all of that with you today. But first, remember to follow the show on Instagram at High Obsessed Podcast. Look for the logo that looks all Twilight Zony with a hidden pineapple, which is, of course, a psych reference for all my psychos out there, and nothing else, at Aaron. Be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choosing. Help the show rise up the rankings, make a mark, all that good stuff. Like I touched on last episode, we're progressing chronologically through this little series dedicated to Alexander the Great's battle, battle and strategic prowess, which is of course a diversion from the original plan, but I think an important one that makes a lot of sense and will hopefully allow us to more fully encapsulate perhaps the most important parts of his life. Also, before we get into it, sorry for no episode last week, it was actually my birthday the weekend like before the episode was due out, and I overestimated you know how busy I'd be. That weekend, and how motivated I'd be to do stuff the week before and also that Sunday, like following all the festivities. So, my bad there. The weird thing is, though, stick with me here, it feels like it's been like at least a month, if not longer, since I've lasted an episode. I don't really know why. The last episode came out two weeks ago, feels so much longer to me. I think I'm having like a weird time dilation thing going on, I guess. I don't know what's up. Ever since the, uh, you know, the daylight savings kicked in, wake up, you know, doze off a little bit, or I wake up in the middle of the night, minutes go by, it feels like hours, I don't know what's going on, the last two weeks I thought the Tuesday was like a Thursday or Friday, so, going through it, and your boy, old, washed up, all of 27 years old now, busy as it gets, and, you know, I needed that little break to kind of regroup. Was that week well-spent? Important question, answer, not really, but c'est la vie. And with that rambling, that misunderstanding of time and space, out of the way, let's get into today's episode. Last time we spoke, we discussed the Battle of Issus, Alexander the Great's first of two large battles against Darius III of Persia. It was a resounding victory for Alexander and the Macedonians, left much of the western satrapies of the Persian Empire open to him, Gave him a huge infusion of cash and prestige after capturing the royal family, one of the Persian treasuries, and Darius III's baggage train. And just if we got to sum up the situation at this point, our dude, Alexander the Great, in an amazing position from which to proceed, one that likely even the most optimistic Alexander Citrophant, the most optimistic Pan Hellenic Crusader, the most optimistic general, whatever, he had exceeded all reasonable thought of what the macedonian greek alliance would be able to accomplish at this point his enemy and the only force really capable of opposing him and his army had fled across the euphrates river leaving him free to overrun and conquer phoenicia along the coast of modern-day lebanon and syria this was an important part of his strategy of winning the sea war by land which is you know let's think about this for a second most sailors where are they going to come from Scholars have argued sailors likely to come from coastal areas, and conquering these areas would make it pretty hard for those in the Persian fleet to remain loyal when their families are essentially being held hostage by the Macedonians. So, here's the thinking. Sailors come from the coast, capture these coastal cities, we're going to have the sailors' families, and guess what? They're going to defect to our side. Plus, The Phoenicians fabled early seafarers and explorers that even have some conspiracy pseudo-historical theories crediting them with being the first from the Old World to reach the Americas. So these, you know, fabled sailors were at the heart of the Persian army. And who knows, maybe an episode will be dedicated to that uh, pseudo-historical theory later on. Anyway, conquering this region was doubly important and represented an important, sometimes lost-over element of Alexander the Great and the Dretro-Macedonian campaign against Persia. Alexander's fame, his legend, and his personal achievements often overshadowed the mundane, the practical, and the methodical way that these conquests were carried out. The political decisions of which cities to invade, which to bribe, which to go around, all of that are largely ignored, both in sources modern and ancient, for the set stuff, the stuff we're covering now, the battles, the cool stories of the Dordian Knot, going to oasises, going to oracles, all that good stuff we're going to talk about as the season continues, I just want to make a note here that it is important, as always, with all of this history, to remember that nothing that we've discussed or will discuss was inevitable. And though it often comes across as easy or casual, very rarely, if ever, was it in reality following their victory at the battle of issus in 333 BCE alexander and the macedonians made a speedy conquest with none really able to with none really keen to resist them at this point after they shattered the persian army and without you know those cities that maybe would be inclined to remain loyal to the persians there's no prospect of you know persians arriving to reinforce that support anytime soon so it just made sense to go over to the macedonians Cain Straton of Aradus, who was the leader of several Phoenician cities, submits to Alexander, and the people of Piblius, one of the major Phoenician cities, deposed their king due to his ties with Darius III. And they come over to Alexander's side as well. And our old friend, Alexander's good friend, possible lover, Hephaestion, tasked with finding them a new king. The other major Phoenician city, Tyre, offered an alliance with Alexander but as the approached, that was clarified to have really been meant as an offer of neutrality. Tyre was an island about a half mile offshore, about 0.8 kilometers for you non-Americans out there, and famed for being nigh on impregnable. It was also strategically important to control of the region as it would serve as a harbor for future Persian invasions of Greece and would really jam up Macedonian communication lines in the events that the Tyrians decided their neutrality was conditional. So it's not just, you know, the famous pathos of him seeing something that had never been done before. He has to do it. He has no choice. There were good political, military, strategic reasons for this. And it could have been his own vanity, too. And so when he arrives on the shores opposite Tyre, he asks to be allowed into the city to sacrifice to Heracles, his ancient ancestor, of course, and whom he identified as the main god of Tyre. Though the Tyrians called him Meltart, and it is possible that Alexander and the Greeks Macedonians just associated Meltart with Heracles because both fought with the club and were strong. So obviously, anyone that fights with the club and is strong has to be Heracles. But regardless, the Tyrians deny Alexander entry. Apparently allowing him entry at this time during a sacred religious festival would have seemingly acknowledged him as ruler of... Tyre, and not simply as an ally or neutral acquaintance, and was thus untenable to the Tyrians, who may have just been playing for time and hoping that Alexander would let them be if they promised to be neutral, and then eventually lose to the Persians and return home. The Tyrians denied Alexander entry, like I mentioned, and told him that where he stood was actually Old Ty- Tyre, which also had a temple to Meltar, and that he was more than welcome to sacrifice there. Alexander made another attempt at negotiations. Sometimes, these negotiations were categorized as sending emissaries demanding the surrender of the Tyrians, but regardless of their message, these envoys were killed in plain view of the Macedonian army and thrown over the walls of Tyre into the sea. At this point, Alexander couldn't let that go unpunished, and both strategy and personal honor at this point demand the conquest of Tyre. Besides, his ancestor Heracles had come to him in a dream, you guys. And in that dream, he led Alexander by hand into Tyre. So clearly, victory was guaranteed here. Now, let's talk about the famed city of Tyre, an island about a half mile 0.8 kilometers offshore. Meaning, you're probably going to need boats to conquer it, right? Also, had two harbors on opposite sides: one in the south, one in the north. The south was called the Egyptian Harbor because it was sort of pointed in the direction of. This meant that. In addition to, you know, island-skilled seamen going on here, we also have opposite harbors, hard to blockade with the very small navy Alexander has at his disposal right now, because they're utterly outclassed and even outnumbered. It also had a fearsome reputation, and though it had spent periods as a vassal to all the great empires of the region, it had remained unconquered and enjoyed a degree of independence. One of its proudest claims was remaining unconquered after a Remaining unconquered after a thirteen year siege by Nebuchadnezzar the Second hundreds of years before Alexander rolls up, when this proud history imbued its citizens with a certain confidence, a certain pride, maybe a certain arrogance, we'll see besides the city also possessed a well-trued fleet, larger and certainly more skilled than the one Alexander had at hand, and they also had strong connections to allies such as their former al- such as their former colony in Carthage. They also had very high walls which rose almost straight up out of the sea, offering no purchase for siege towers on like there's no shore on this island. It was you get there, walls. The waters off the coast relatively shallow, but by the time you've reached the walls, it was about fifteen to twenty feet deep. So even if they you know the walls weren't quite as tall as the 150 feet that Arian gives us. They were remarkably impressive, and they were well out of reach of any siege engines at the time attempting to fire from land that also, like I said, have never been breached before. Thus, countering Tyre was quite an imposing prospect, and Alexandra would need a unique strategy to pull this off. Fortunately, you know, what is our guy? He's a thinker. He has unique ideas. Also, fortunately, he has a skilled and experienced corps of engineers skilled and experienced corps of engineers with his army, a practice he carried over from his father, Philip. Alexander orders his engineers to construct a mole or causeway, a sort of land bridge, out to the island. At first, this causeway was to be about 20 feet wide, an old tier was destroyed to supply the necessary stone for the task, and a nearby forest provided the lumber. This was an exhausting and daunting task by itself, Stones had to be created by destroying the old buildings and then carried to the shore and assembled into the mole. Lumber had to be cut and carried from the forest, and the stationary army had to be supplied as well. You know, they're not foraging, they're not raiding, and it took a lot of effort to feed such a large army when it remained still like this. Neighboring communities and cities, including Jerusalem, were asked to contribute supplies. And asked, we would use air quotes there, but you know asked to contribute supplies, and most did. There were also raids by local tribes during the weeks and months that the causeway was under construction, We did a notable story of Alexander personally leading a force against them. And, you know, he's preparing for battle, he's getting ready, and his old tutor, Lysimachus rolls up, and he's pretty old at this point, but he insists on going along with Alexander and his troops into the mountains to do battle. Or at least observe the battle. I, mean, I would doubt our guy's fighting at this point. During the night, it became too cold for the tutor to continue, and he collapses, exhausted by the pace, exhausted by the conditions, and this forces Alexander and his men to stop as well. The night grew so cold in fact, that Alexander was supposed to have snuck into the raider's camp, killed two men, and stolen a burning branch, which he brought back to his camp in order to bring a fire and light it to keep his old teacher alive. Fun story for sure. Uh, we love a tall tale around here at High Key Obsessed. Dubious on the truth of it, even me, a big fan of Alexander. But remarkable story, none the less. Anyway, all the months of hard work, they're beginning to pay off. And the Tyrians, who at first had been roasting the Macedonians, are like, what are you why are you throwing rocks at here? You're never gonna reach us, and then the bridge starts to take form, they're like, okay. Ain't no way you guys are getting out here, though. You guys are supposed to be soldiers, and you're just building stuff. Lame. Now, for all their grandstanding and hot and they're getting a little nervous. And the causeway's creeping slowly but surely towards their island city. And as it continues further out, the workers grow closer. The Tyrians are like, hey, we better start shooting at them. And so they start shooting at them with arrows, and eventually missiles from catapults are launched as well. And our guys, they're just laboring under the hot sun, getting shot at. They're like, do I build? Do I use a shield? I can't wear armor when I'm working. It's hard. It's tough on our guys. And these projectiles, sometimes they wound Macedonians. Really, they're just annoying and delay everything. And this begins the process that I think makes this siege so fascinating. It stretches on for months, and during this time, both attacker and defender come up with these crazy new strategies and innovations to counteract the other so as each side comes up with a response to what the other one's doing, the other one counter responds, and it's just on and on and on, escalation. Very cool. So the Macedonians are building a big old bridge out to the city. So, you know, Tyrians see Macedonians building a big old bridge out to the city. They're like, cool, we'll shoot them. Macedonians see this, and they decide, you know, we can't let our boys get shot up like this. And So they build two high towers at the edge of the causeway, using hides to protect against flaming and projectiles, and they put artillery on these towers to strike back at the Tyrians. Very cool. The, these towers are so tall that they can shoot down at the deck of any opposing warship, and they offer protection to the workers from any artillery being fired from the walls of Tyr. So, two-for-one action, defense, and attack. The Tyrians see this, and they did this steaming as well, and they had a transport ship. Just absolutely chock full of combustible flammable materials and they hang barrels up on the masts so that as the ship burns and crashes it'll that'll come crashing down and fuel the flames even more. They light the ship on fire, tie it to two tie reams, which tow it. Like they you know, they start rowing hard and they tow it, point it with its stern weighted with its stern way down at the mole. At the last moment the sailors who are aboard the flaming ship trying to steering it, they jump overboard and it crashes into the bridge the Macedonians are burning, the bridge the Macedonians are building, lighting the towers of flame and destroying them. And invading parties of Tyrians come and, you know, they start pushing the Macedonians back and destroy the work, just like months worth of work in mere hours. Alexander is pissed and he remains unda- undaunted and orders construction on a new mole to commence immediately. Only this time, much wider and with more towers positioned all along it for defense. He additionally positions siege towers on top of ships. Let me say that again. He orders that siege towers be put on ships to keep pressure on the defenders, so that, you know they'll roll the uh, siege towers out a little bit, get some firing going on at the walls of tears, so they're not, you know, get them a little stressed. Let them know we're coming for you and they also protect those working on the new causeway. He was also fortunate because around this time, a number of Phoenicians defect from the Persian fleet, and he also rallied, He also goes to An and rallies a contingent because he realizes that he'd need at least to challenge the Tyrians at sea if he hopes to win this siege. And so with this defection of about 120 ships, he has a pretty sizable and pretty skilled fleet with which to keep the Tyrians more hemmed in, and not operate with impunity at sea. The Tyrians don't want to just, you know, keep fighting a losing sea battle and see their morale go down, so they blockade themselves into their two harbors, which prevents anyone from getting in, but also mostly prevents them from getting out as well. The work on the new causeway continues for months, creeping slowly, but surely closer and closer to Tyre, putting the men, once again, at range of attack, which, as they get super close to the city, they get subjected to burning hot sand being poured down on them, which would sneak through any cracks in the armor, any gaps in clothing, and burn the skin quite horribly. And it was like, it just really drove the Macedonians nuts. During this, both sides keep innovating ways to protect themselves from the constant barrage of missiles, Alexander forces had built the towers and equipped ships with siege towers and artillery to keep a constant pressure on the defenders. And the Tyrians responded by covering their warships with rudimentary armor so that they could be protected from oncoming artillery and cut the lines of ships holding the siege engines, which often had to be lashed together to support the weight. So basically, there'd be like two, three ships supporting a siege tower. The Tyrians took their ships protected them with armor, so, so the torsion catapults are to just destroy them when they were shot at. And then they jump out. They would jump out of the ship, swim to the Macedonian ships, cut the ropes that held the siege showers in place, get back on their vessel, run away. Macedonians see this. They're like, all right, we'll use chains. Works a little bit. And then they armor their own ships in response as well. Next, the Tyrians pad their walls with sacks filled with seaweed in order to mitigate the blows from incoming projectiles, and they create these devices, kind of like wheels, which were designed to block attacks from the Macedonians and incoming artillery. Pretty cool. Eventually, the Tyrians risk a raid by sea, and they prepare it so well that they can attack in almost complete silence, and this works so they are able to surprise the Macedonians. And A fair amount of the ships allied to Alexander are sunk, not nearly enough, and nearly all the attacking ships are sunk or captured, but most of the men are able to escape, they just jump off the boat, swim back to the city. However, following this, no further attacks were mustered, and morale in the city began to decline steadily. There may have been a push to reinstitute an ancient practice of infant sacrifice, and statues of Apollo were chained after claims that he was fleeing the city. But despite the way things were going, you know, they're blockaded, they're trapped in their city, this causeway's getting closer, the uh, fleet Alexander has assembled is beginning to rival their own. The Tyrians don't make any moves to surrender. Alexander would attempt to probe the defenses throughout the siege, but really, things were reliant on the mole strategy working out. After a time, a sea monster, which is probably a whale or maybe like a large octopus or something like that, washes up on the causeway, and then it retreats back into the sea. Both the Macedonians and Tyrians see this and view it as a good omen. Alexander and the Macedonians launch an assault, and they are able to find a vulnerable spot near the southern harbor of Tyre and they have these floating battering rams affixed to the ships, which represents very likely the first case of a floating weapon in the history of Siegecraft, again another impressive innovation from Alexander and his engineers. As the Macedonians press the Tyrians on all sides, they find most to purchase in the southern harbor, and all seems lost for Tyre. But bad weather and terrific, or horrific winds come in, causing Alexander to have to call off the assault as he loses several ships due to the weather. This weather would persist for two days, but on the third day, Alexander and the Macedonians renewed their attack, installing winches on ships that were designed to retrieve rocks the Tyrians had placed in the sea to keep the battering ram ships away. So basically, the battering ram ships were pretty effective. In order to prevent this, the Tyrians lobbed huge boulders into the sea surrounding it so that they couldn't approach, and in the span of two days... The Macedonians design a device that scoops the rocks up out of the sea and then hurls them back at the Tyrians as a catapult. So, that's incredible. Again, seeing this, the Tyrians swim out and they cut the ropes holding these together, and again the Macedonians replace the ropes with chains, ultimately prevailing and clearing a path to the walls. At this point, the battering ram ships resume their attack, Supported by other ships carrying hypaspists with ladders, hypaspists of course the elite strike troops of the Macedonian army and these hypaspists with their ladders and ropes begin climbing up the wall, eventually finding purchase and beginning to take over things on the southern harbor. Alexander joins the fray, marching with another regiment of hypaspists to storm the city by way of the causeway that they'd worked so hard to build. The leader of the hypaspists was killed storming the walls. Alexander makes it up to the top, fighting, hacking, furiously driving the defenders from their stronghold, forcing them away from the walls as more and more attackers come up and over. After many hard and exhausting months spent building the causeway, enduring annoying and deadly attacks and taunts from the Tyrians, the murder of their envoys, the Macedonians absolutely rampaged across the city. Despite orders from Alexander that anyone taking shelter in a temple be spared, 8,000 men were said to have fallen during the assault, and, following an- and in the aftermath another 2,000 taken prisoner and crucified along the shore. Now, there is some doubt about the crucifixion story, but it is certainly possible that it was carried out as a demonstration, venting a frustration to show what would happen to those who dared resist Alexander and the Macedonians. If we include the 2,000, all told, around 10,000 Tyrians were killed, and another 30,000 enslaved, according to our ancient sources, who report a highly unlikely 400 dead for the Macedonians throughout the months-long siege. Sated of slaughter and now ruler of the city, Alexander finally satisfied his desire to sacrifice at the city's temple to Heracles, and people were brought in from elsewhere to repopulate the city, and though it would remain wealthy and populous, and... It would keep those ties with its former colony in Carthage strong. It would never again reach the heights it had before crossing Alexander the Great. It also would never again be an island because people, hear me now. To this day, Tyre is no longer an island. But an Isthmus, off the coast of Lebanon, there's a modern city there with a world heritage site of the ancient city. But what it isn't is an island. And I just think that is so cool. Like, this dude, thousands of years ago, because he wanted to conquer a city, literally altered geography forever, because the causeway he ordered built collected more and more mud and sand from the tides and became a permanent isthmus adjoining the island to the shore. That is fucking nuts. That is incredible. There were points during the siege when perhaps Alexander felt like giving up, and in the grand scheme of things, Tyr probably wasn't super important. And it has been argued that our dude was lightly burning to get to Egypt because, oh boy, what he did up to some cool things in Egypt. Plus, we gotta remember the Greeks were quite fascinated with Egypt because it was ancient, even in ancient times. But here's the thing: as Alexander and his men sunk more time and effort, and frankly ingenuity, into conquering Tyre, it became impossible to give up. It pissed off his men. It serve as testament that he and they could be defeated and overcome and would leave his rear vulnerable to an attack at sea with Tyre serving as a base to the Persians. Plus, the seeming zeal with which Alexander sought to conquer the city infected his men, driving them to work harder under the frustrating conditions. So the reason I'm such a big fan of this siege is because of the ingenuity on display from both sides and the fact that Alexander literally transformed an island into a permanent isthmus. The sheer inventiveness of siege and besiegers is so cool, and a testament to the human spirit. It sucks that the circumstances were war and led to mass casualties, but just from like a bang, remove the humanity elements of things, just so cool. The siege demonstrated the relentlessness of, the relentlessness of Alexander, the inventiveness, and the ingenuity. Basically, this single campaign, the single siege, is sort of a case study of all the features that encapsulate why the ancients considered him the great, considered him worthy of that title. And it's just, you know, I've already covered it all in the contents of this episode, but I cannot overstate how crazy the innovation and counter innovation plus the fact that the city became a permanent isthmus thing is. Like, it's jaw-dropping. The only other time the city had come close to being humbled like this Was hundreds of years before, and it had taken 13 years for the city to be stalemated by another invader. And that was the closest the city had ever become, as far as we know, to catching a full blown L before this. And in six months, Alexander and the Macedonians had sacked it. So, you know, as I'm reading it, based on the criteria we got, maybe there is something to this whole the great thing. But. That's all we have time for today, pretty quick episode, another quick one coming next week as we do Alexander's Siege of Gaza, which also comes in 332 BCE. So thank you for listening, be sure to drop those 5-star ratings, 5-star reviews wherever you're listening to this program right now, and to tell your friends about the show, get them listening, get them chatting about it, could be sick, could be huge, I did one time back in the day, almost get a friend of mine a date, using Alexander the Great trivia, so you know, maybe you get your friend listening. Maybe they get you a date. Maybe you keep listening. Maybe you to your friend a date. Who knows? Maybe you almost did them a date. Uh, also, be sure to follow the show on Instagram at High T Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High T O Podcast. But until next time, remember: all in all, you're just another brick in the wall.